But first, let's start with yet another world-changing, life-changing survey that we put on our Instagram page. Uh, if you don't follow us, we're making waves in the world uh, over at the Atlanta Christian Church page. Um, but very simple question, what's the greatest Christmas movie of all time, right? Uh, it's a lot of, lot of people. Um, here are the top ones, by the way. Elf was a big one. Anybody Elf fans? Yeah, my wife hates that movie. Uh, we have really... We have issues around Christmas because I love the movie A Christmas Story. She hates the movie A Christmas Story. I love Elf. She doesn't like Elf. We do like uh, Christmas Vacation, uh, which for some reason did not make the list. I have no clue as to why, not on the list, but Elf is in there. White Christmas, anybody? Classics. Uh, The Charlie Brown Christmas Special. That is at least the best soundtrack of all time. So, facts from Dana and Row 2 over here. Suzanne, who preached last week, I never heard of this movie. She wrote in The Holiday. But she... Jack Black's in it? You had me at Jack Black. But she wrote The Holiday, and then she wrote Don't Judge Me. So I don't know what that means. I have a question mark by this one, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the know here, but The Bishop's Wife... A few of you sort of admitted that you know what it was. Okay. But the number one pick, and I'm so happy about this, is the Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys Muppets fans? We, it's on Netflix. You can just watch old episodes. We watch them all the time, and our daughter is like, what is this? <laughs> so... Muppets. Very surprised that Die Hard was not on the list. I don't know what's happening, uh, but that's always a good one. The greatest of all time. The goat, as my son says. It's a phrase that I think we like to employ when we're talking about things like famous people or athletes or film or music or whatever. Uh, it's, it's something that we like to say. This is the greatest or they're the greatest of all time. Have you all heard of this um, Taylor Swift person? Have you heard of this person? Um, <laughs> for the record, I know who she is. Um, but it, she's like a real force in the music world. I don't know if you know this, okay? Uh, especially during the recent tour. Anybody go to that tour? <laughs> all right, that's good. This is all we're doing today. I'm just talking about <laughs> things that you've been doing. <laughs> We're shutting the year down, so we'll see what happens today. But I looked up the tour, and it turns out that the Eras Tour is the highest grossing tour of all time. Followed by Elton John, like his 15th farewell tour, uh, Ed Sheeran, and then you too, right behind him, uh, right behind her. But the, the highest grossing tour of all time, over a billion dollars this thing has brought in, so... Uh, I think you could say, just with the data, at this point, the greatest of all time when it comes to these things. Pretty amazing. Um, Sometimes trying to figure out what the greatest of all time is can be stressful. Um, When I was in the hospital a couple years ago having surgery, uh, multiple surgeries, and then was recovering in the hospital, I had a panic attack. And um, because the communion table was six inches off. (laughs) But... (gasps) I had a panic attack, 
And it was pretty bad. Like nurses came in and it was like a whole thing. And then when the room emptied out, my wife said to me, okay, okay, let's work on breathing and thinking about something else. And she said to me, tell me what you think is the best Grateful Dead song. And I said, now I'm really stressed, okay? (laughs) Blood pressure's up, the heart rate's going through the roof. I don't want to talk about this. Um, It's Althea, by the way. All right. So sometimes it can be stressful. But anyway, the greatest of all time. If there's a downside to this focus on who the greatest is and what the greatest is, it would be that such a sentiment would drift into our reasoning about ourselves, that we would find ourselves concerned about measuring up to those around us uh, or even measuring up to some kind of standard that isn't really attainable. Um, My wife has a kid in her kindergarten class at school whose name is King. And just so you know, it's not going well because the kid thinks he's a king. It's interesting. And on this third Sunday of Advent, we are invited to think about greatness, but also about lowliness. And in our gospel reading for today, we're once again drawn into this scene with John the baptizer. Advent always has two Sundays with this guy. He's a relative of Jesus. We know this about him. He had amassed a following of people uh, that was quite large. He's influential in his work. Uh, He's out in the wilderness baptizing people as a sign of uh, that church word, repentance, but also of a changed heart. And um, in the Jesus story, John the baptizer functions as this announcer of Christ's arrival. So he fits great into the Advent season. He's always talking about the one who is to come. He's announcing the one who is to come. His influence, by the way, in popularity Uh, is fairly well documented. John the Baptist is written about in ancient writings outside of the Bible. So people knew who this person was. He was known. And in our story today, he was approached, if you were following along on the reading, he's approached by these religious leaders from Jerusalem who had been sent to figure out who John thought he was and what his intentions were with all his influence. You know, whenever a crowd forms, those in charge get a little nervous. And so they sent people out to find out from John's own perspective, who do you think that you are? And they run through a list of pretty famous uh, people in Israel's history, all of which he says, that's not me. I'm not any of those people. He simply tells them that he is but a voice for the one who is to come. I'm a voice In the wilderness, he says, but pointing to the one who is to come. And I love what John says about John. John's gospel says about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. Now, Some fun stuff for you uh, as you dig through the Gospel of John in your own time. The Gospel of John is a very interesting uh, narrative of Jesus' life. It's structured and crafted into a kind of new Genesis creation story 
with Jesus being at the center of it. John's gospel is a new creation story. In verses one through five, which Kendra read for us, I've put the references in here. You can see this. You can feel the similarities from Genesis 1. In the beginning, let's say that together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and that life was the what? The light of all people. The light shines into the darkness, Genesis 1-4, and the darkness does not overcome it. The first created thing in the Genesis story is light. Why? Well, the verses before light comes into being paint this picture of chaos and darkness and disorder and fear. And light becomes this uh, tool for safety. Light is order. It's vision. It provides a way for us to move forward. And so light becomes the very first thing that we see created in the Bible. It's saying something quite powerful about Jesus, too, that John would say he is the light. That God enters our lives, our worlds, as an agent of rescue and safety, of order and vision. It's a saving presence over the shadows and the darkness in our world. But he says this about John. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And so the thing we read about here with John is that he is not the light. It's a really big lesson for the church. Sometimes we're bright, we're attractive, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we strike it lucky and we do something or say something that provides a light for people. This is our calling to be the light of the world. I mean, that's from the words of Jesus. But at the end of the day, you and I are not the light, not the light. We're kind of like a light, a little candle. But the light belongs to God And so John is listed here as someone who is not the light, but someone who is there to show where the light is. His life is directional. It's a life of deflection. And I want you to let those words seek in for a moment that he is not the light. I mean, if John had a name tag on, he's saying, it ain't me you're looking for. It's him. And let those words sink in for just a moment. Because what I feel when I hear those words is relief. We don't have to be our own means of salvation. Amen? Which is a tendency that we humans have. That we can just, by our own will and by our own power, make all things right in our lives and maybe in the world around us. And one of the reasons that John is so important in the Advent story is that he stands there as a reminder for all of us that our humanity can only take us so far. 
I mean, if you go back and read the story that we're looking at today, John just, it's, it's one denial after another. I'm not him, I'm not him, I'm not him. And that our humanity is limited. And that there has to be a breaking point in our own attempts at self-justification and redemption. Like an awakening moment when we start to see that the world that we live in has limits on grace and mercy. And that our hope for such things reside, can only reside in God. This was the vocation of John. That he helped people posture themselves in the direction of God's grace and mercy. He reminded them of his own human limitations in that realm as well. I'm not him, but there he is. John was a flawed man. Now, Jesus loved John. And I don't know if it's because Jesus just loves the strange people. But John was flawed. There are things about John's preaching that Jesus does not agree with. There are things about John's methods that Jesus would do completely different. But he loved him, even though he was flawed. John was judgmental at times. His spirit was one of cultural frustration. John had opinions about stuff, about leaders, about the government, about the city. He was this kind of guy. And yet, he recognized beneath all of that that he stood humbly as a tracer to someone greater. And what made Jesus greater was his uh, scandalous use of God's grace over the lives of all people. That's not something John could do. <laughs> John is a lot like you and me. He, uh, he had a tendency to enjoy the, uh, the warnings and the judgment. Those were no problem for him. But Jesus comes along and it's quite different. Ready to distribute God's grace to all people. But John couldn't do that. He was bound to return to what we all do, which is assess and judge people against the standard we ourselves usually can't even maintain. John wasn't the light, but he pointed to the light. And one of the questions around Advent that I get from people, and I even ask this question sometimes too, why did God send his son And what does Jesus mean for me and you and for the world around us? It is a strange story. And these are questions whose answers are filled out more in the Christmas and Epiphany seasons and throughout Lent and Easter. But here in Advent, we're handed at least a sketch of the whole story of God's love for the world, seen in the arrival of what the gospel writers call a savior. Say that word, savior. You'll hear it in the Christmas songs, you'll see it in the gospels, that Jesus has this role of a bringer of salvation. The Greek here for salvation is a very interesting term. It has to do with wholeness, restoration, rescue, not judgment, but newness, amen? 
that Jesus is somehow a bringer of this to the world. And when it comes to these things, when it comes to salvation as a whole, the good news is that we are not left to do that on our own because we are not the light either. But there is a light that has been given to us. And John is this reminder that we're in each other's lives to keep pointing to the light. Amen? That's what we do. We're not the light. Sometimes we shine, sometimes we're dark. But we know where the light is. And we point to it. I want to close by reading a lengthy passage from um, a book titled Law and Gospel by William McDavid, Ethan Richardson, and David Zoll. They write, There is no more subversive song than Santa Claus is coming to town. But it's not subversive for the reasons that religious people usually take issue with Santa when they lament the commercialization and secularization disguised in the detour from Bethlehem to the North Pole. No, that holiday classic is so subversive on account of how effectively it sabotages the beating heart for Christmas, which has to do with giving. We tell children that Santa Claus comes down the chimney to deliver them presents, to shower them with gifts. And the song paints a different picture. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Nice children get toys. Naughty ones, lumps of coal. This Santa Claus is not actually the giver of gifts. He's in the business of doing, of doling out reward and punishment. As we all know, any gift premised on deserving is not really a gift at all. It's more of a paycheck, an act based in reciprocity rather than generosity. A gift, on the other hand, is a decidedly lopsided transaction and therefore a fitting image for Christmas, which marks the remembrance of Christ's birth. The baby Jesus represents pure gift, a light shining on those who dwell in darkness, the revelation of God's love and all its vulnerability and impossibility. Like all true gifts, he arrives unbidden, a great and glorious surprise, a savior given to those who don't deserve one, as the one who will, quote, save people from their sins, the Christ child signifies something startlingly new and unassailably good. In his life and ministry, Christ would bear out this divine generosity. He would become a walking euphemism for it. Again, those who welcomed him most enthusiastically would be those whose lives had stripped them of any illusions about deservedness, a.k.a. sinners. Their only way of receiving him was as a gift. This is what we see in Christ's treatment of lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes and reprobates. He does not relate to them on the basis of what they bring to the table, but on the basis of who he is. And it makes every difference. He is the yes to the world's no. There's a lot of talk about the war on Christmas <laughs> this time of year. But the war on Christmas is actually from within inside the house. 
when we forget that this is about a grace and a mercy beyond description. Amen? There are no great Christians, only a Christ who is great. And Christ's greatness is found in his lowliness, in his presence among those of us who are more at home in failure than in success.